This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We welcome you to this time of seminary chapel worship where we are so pleased to have the Reverend Melissa Flora Bixler as our speaker. Since this is a smaller gathering than we usually have in Lehman, we have decided to focus on this side of the auditorium. So if you are sitting in this wing and wish to move over here, you may be able to participate with a little bit more ease. Our gathering hymn this morning is here in this place. You can find the music on the screen or in Voices Together in your pew on page 10. Here in this place, let us stand as we sing. shadows vanished away see in this space our fears and our dreamings brought here to you in the light of this day gather us in the lost and forsaken gather us in our spirits in flame call to us now and we shall awaken we shall arise at the sound of our name. We are the young, our lives are a mystery. We are the old who yearn for your face. We have been sung throughout all of history, called to be slight to the whole human race. Gather us in and the haughty, gather us in the proud and the strong. Give us a heart so meek and so holy, give us the courage to enter the song. We have been sung the wine of compassion, weary will take the bread of new birth. Here we become the people you fashion, children of God to the sun for the earth. Give us to drink the wine ever flowing, give us to eat the bread that is you. Nourish us well and guide us in growing lives that are holy and hearts that are true. Not in the building, dim and confining, not in some heaven light years away. But here in this place, the new light is streaming. Now is the dawning, now is the day. Gather us in and hold us forever. Gather us in and make us your own. Gather us in, all peoples together, fire and our love in our flesh and our bones. 
Let us remain standing as we join together in the unison prayer found on the screen or number 862 in Voices Together, 862. We pray together, you who open doors and dismantle barriers, open our hearts to praise you that we might live the full truth of who we are that we might live as neighbors and friends, no longer strangers and enemies. Open our hearts to the transforming power of your love, that we might forgive and reconcile, making peace and learning war no more, that we might be your people, one body in one spirit, to tell your grace to all the world. We pray in the name of the one who walked among us as brother and friend. Amen. You may be seated. I'm Brian Martin Burkholder, University Chaplain and pleased to be involved with this service. The scripture reading today is 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. Now in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. Indeed, there have to be factions among you, for only so will it become clear who among you are genuine. And when you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper, for when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper, and one goes hungry, another becomes drunk. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves, and only then eat the bread and drink the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my friends, when you come together to eat, 
wait for one another. If you're hungry, eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for your condemnation. Now about the other things, I will give instructions when I come. I think we can remain seated for this one, but I invite you to take a uh, posture of prayerful posture of presence. Um, as we sing number 65, let all mortal flesh keep silence.
This morning, Reverend Melissa Flora Bixler joins us from Raleigh, North Carolina, where she pastors Raleigh Mennonite Church and is an author, mother of three, spouse, and fierce advocate for the holistic flourishing of persons and communities. Melissa is unafraid to grapple with systems, power, evil, especially in the church. She has a large social media following and her writing has been featured in Christian Century, Sojourners, G's, Anabaptist Witness, The Bias, Faith and Leadership, and Anabaptist Vision. Melissa is a graduate of Duke University and, I'm delighted to say, an alum of Princeton Theological Seminary. I've had the delightful experience of being mistaken for her sister because we share the same last name, Bixler, but unfortunately we haven't found a familial link. I've also had the pleasure of following Melissa into several communities, starting with Princeton and then to Oxford Circle Mennonite Church in Philadelphia, where I heard many affirmations of Melissa's dedication to community development and well-being, which she lives out by leading and learning in many places. As chair of La Arch in North Carolina, a steering committee member in broad-based organizing in her county, in Israel-Palestine, in Kenya, in England, and in the large community of Portland, Oregon. Melissa's published two books with Herald Press, Fire by Night, Finding God in the Pages of the Old Testament, and the work she'll draw from in some of her presentations on campus this week, How to Have an Enemy, Righteous Anger and the Work of Peace. For Seminary Chapel today, her topic is Without discerning the body. Melissa, we're thrilled to welcome you at EMU, and we're all ears. It's a joy to be with you today, and um, uh, before we get started, I, I just learned this morning that um, Al Rabito, uh, whose work I draw on quite a bit in the sermon, uh, he's um, authored the book Slave Religion, The Invisible Institution in the Antebellum South. Uh, he died this week, and um, it is a loss to, to the church and to the, play, and to the people that he taught, um, but also remembering that uh, today Al Rabito joins us as part of the communion of saints, um, and we remember of him of blessed memory today. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, a few years ago, my friend Latanya asked if I would preach at her church on a Wednesday evening. Latanya is part of the Missionary Baptist Church. Um, and this is a denomination that was formed by formerly enslaved people. A century and a half ago, the ancestors of the missionary Baptists worshipped under the eye of white slavers. These white men and women assured that their preachers would truncate the gospel to exclude stories of freedom from slavery, 
Stories about Moses or Esther. Stories that spoke to the common humanity that we all shared in Jesus. In a document from this time, Lucretia Adams, a formerly enslaved woman, described one of these services. The preacher came and he just say, serve your masters. Don't steal your master's turkey. Don't steal your master's chicken. Do whatsoever the master tells you. Same old thing all the time. It wasn't good news. It was manipulation teaching enslaved people to serve their masters as an act of godly charity and peace and love. And yet, the gospel message snuck through. Sometimes, enslaved Africans and their descendants would meet in secret in the bush arbor or in abandoned cabins to worship beyond the reaches of slavers. Lucretia Adams described one of these services as well. My father would have church in dwelling houses. They had to whisper. Sometimes they would have church at his house. That would be when they want a real meeting with some real preaching. These open-air meetings became a refuge and a sanctuary. Enslaved people cried to God for freedom but these meetings also became places of resistance, where enslaved people learned to read, where they planned revolts, where they learned how to escape. And so punishment for attending these meetings was severe. One enslaved preacher named Isaac was flogged in his back, splashed in vinegar for preaching at a meeting. Another man named Bib was threatened with 500 lashes for gathering people for worship at a neighboring farm. The man who threatened him was a deacon of the local Baptist church. After emancipation and the Civil War, the bush arbors, or hush harbors as they're sometimes called, they developed into brick and mortar churches. The descendants of freed people broke away from the white Baptist churches of the South. They formed their own houses of worship. And the Missionary Baptist Church is one of their descendants. The night that I preached at Latanya's church, uh, we shared communion together. And she led us through a practice I know well from my Mennonite church, reciting those words from 1 Corinthians. For I receive from the Lord what I handed on to you. I could say them by heart right along with her. Paul tells the Corinthians that on the night Jesus died, he gives bread and gives thanks. And Jesus declares that this is his body, his flesh, and he gives it to the disciples to eat. And then Jesus takes a cup and gives it to his friends. He tells them this is his blood of the new covenant. Paul relays to the church that this is an act of embodied memory keeping. And in my church, around our communion table, this is where the reading ends. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. But that night, surrounded by the descendants of the bush arbors and the first black churches of this country, Latanya kept going. 
Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves, and only then eat of the bread and drink the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body eat and drink judgment upon themselves. For this reason, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. We do not read that part in my church. (laughs) And actually, there's a good reason for it. Many people at Raleigh Mennonite, this, this, for many people, this part of Paul's instruction relates this sort of moralistic exclusion. There were, are people in my congregation who grew up going to movies in other towns because they didn't want the bishops to see what movies they were going to. The bishops might show up at their house to announce that their family was not set apart from the world and therefore unable to receive communion. Other people in my church, especially queer people, hear in Paul's language a demand for purity and performance, that somehow we need to earn our way to the table through some sort of moralism. But that night, at Basil Creek Missionary Baptist Church, I took in these sobering news with new ears as they breathed new life into me into the shared supper. For centuries, the church has wrung its hands over this warning about eating in an unworthy manner. But we only need to back ourselves up a few verses to understand the particular situation of this house church. And this is what Paul describes. A group of ragged people show up for a common meal. They've come to this house because they've been gathered by this strange new teacher who declared the teachings of this man named Jesus. He told them that God's son in Jesus Christ had come to live among them and had broken apart this old way of life. All these temple cults with their inherent economic social ordering and household gods and factionalism, all of this is swept away and will be swept away in the life of the church in Corinth. Turns out that they're all in the same boat. All of them bound up in appeasing wooden gods created for profit, honoring statues around meals to solidify social contracts or attempting to convince God of their worthiness. But Paul has this free gift of a different kind of life. Paul will tell them that nothing, nothing could separate them from the love of God, that this love would take over their lives, and it would be pulling together people once separated by ethnicity and social class. It's late. And these day laborers and enslaved people are trudging up the stairs to the upper room and they can smell the food. They've been working since sunup in the fields and homes of the masters. Some of them are enslaved, others are the lower tier of Judea's highly structured social program. And they are all hungry for food and the refuge of others. And as they reach this upper room, They see the plates in the bowls where the food should be are empty. Members of this house church 
who had leisure time, they came early. They've eaten everything. There's a problem in Corinth with social division among class and economic lines. And the wealthier Christians who have much, who spend who don't spend all day laboring, are instructed to change their behavior. If they can't hold it together, they need to go home and have a snack first. I'm sure that the people in Corinth are shocked to hear this. Of course the wealthy landowners and business people ought to eat first. This is their right by status and social standing. Instead, Paul tells them that this is a meal that will make them one. It binds them to Jesus and to Jesus' body. But the way they are eating now, it only leads to sickness and death. Contrary to the Mennonite bishops out there looking for impieties, Paul has something else in mind when he tells us not to eat unworthily. Paul tells the Corinthians to discern the body. To discern the body. He's concerned that Christ's body, the church, is fracturing. And this is the work given to those who are well off, the haves of Corinth, who have not put the concerns of the poor at the center of their common life. They, only they, are for Paul tearing apart the body of Jesus. The scholar Dale Martin writes that by opening Christ's body to schism, they open their own bodies up to disease and death. And this is where Paul makes this really fascinating move. Uh, the shared meal of the Corinthians is a pharmacon, a medicine. It can act positively for the body, and like medicine, it can also be poisonous. In their dissolution of the body of Jesus by asserting social status over poor Christians in their church, the body of Jesus they consume is now an alien agent that courts death. It can no longer be taken medicinally for healing. That may sound a little strange in our ears <laughs> until we return to the pews of Basil Creek Missionary Baptist Church. Following the Civil War, newly freed black people led an exodus away from white Baptist churches in the South. The duplicity of the white church through its steadfast commitment to slavery led Frederick Douglass to look at the religious practices in the South and say, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. No reason but the most deceitful one. Formerly enslaved black Christians remembered the experiences of people like the fugitive William Humpert of South Carolina who wrote this. I have seen a minister hand the sacrament to the deacons to give the slaves and before the slaves had time to get home, living a great distance from the church, have seen one of the same deacons acting as patrol flog one of the brother members within two hours of administering the sacrament to him because he met a slave with a passport beyond the time allowed him to go home. 
My opinion of slavery is not a bit different now from what it was then. I have always hated it from childhood. I looked at the conduct of the deacon with a feeling of revenge. I thought that a man who would administer the sacrament to a brother church member and flog him before he got home ought not to live. The survival of the white church has depended on us becoming a poison to ourselves. In order for that to be undone, there would have needed to be a socioeconomic reorientation. The majority of power holders, former enslavers, would need to put the thriving and flourishing of their formerly enslaved at the center of their lives. Instead, white churches continue to shut out black preachers and leaders. Churches remained segregated. Black ministries were underfunded. Some black worshipers began to create their own spaces for worship that began to build social institutions denied them by the white church and by white communities. The black church learned firsthand of the poison communion taken by the white Baptist churches, and I have no doubt their intention was not to repeat this among themselves. For the missionary Baptist, words about eating in an unworthy manner bear a warning, a warning against a church devoted to destruction. They are not words of encouragement to stay morally pure, but not to falter, not to split apart over social division. Black lives would depend upon unity in the face of the brutal onslaught of the United States white supremacy. And so that night at Basil Creek, we too were invited to hear the words of warning from Paul. We came forward to receive. I remember the bread was pre-cut in these little squares. And would it be medicine healing us? Or would we eat and drink to our own destruction? Would we tear apart as the socially and economically low among us were pushed aside and disregarded and embarrassed? Or would the grace of God unfold here, the body for us in its breaking and rising again? I, I remember how small that bread felt in my hands. You could barely even feel it. It was so weightless. It's just this tiny square. And I'm sure like the wealthier Corinthians wondered, as I did in that moment, what is such a big deal? It's not like the Corinthians are locking these people out or stealing from them. They just got hungry. And I suspect Paul recognizes this tendency in all of us, which is why he takes time in this letter to point out the problem. We would prefer to get along with the way things are. We can simply replicate the patterns of social custom around us and import them into the church. We have black and white members worshiping here. Our churches contain the well-off and the destitute. We can worship together with queer people and others who do not affirm their marriage and loves. There's a place for all of us here around God's table to find unity in the body and blood of Christ. 
And Paul says, not so fast. It is not enough to cultivate a diverse community. We have to upend our lives for the people in our communities who suffer under social repression. That is gonna get into the intimate parts of who we are. It will have consequences for our social mobility, for our relationships to our family members and our friends. The most vulnerable among us become the center of our common life. Just a little bit later, Paul will conjure up another fleshly image in Corinthians. Every person is necessary, he tells them. Every person is needed for the function of Jesus' body in the world, not just the wealthy people with education and standing, but the weaker members, the less honorable. We clothe them with greater honor. They are to be the most honored among us. Friends, that is not the legacy of the majority white church in the United States. If it was, we would be reading in our church history books how baptism eliminated the possibility of people in the church owning other people. If it was, the white church would have been designated a community of race traders who lost social and economic standing in their local communities. The church as we know it would not exist. No more large endowments or tall steeple churches built with wealth. No more political influence. We would lose all of that, but at least we would still be alive. Beloved, here is the good news of Jesus Christ. We are a people of resurrection. God is stretching out for us with God's body, always inviting us to take Jesus into our own lives. This won't come about with false claims of unity or brushing past our divisions. This will come about through the work of the Holy Spirit, whom we discern together as she makes and remakes every part of who we are. And this new life will free each of us from social division and economic stratifications of the old order of sin and death. Uh, when I look back on sharing communion with the people at Basil Creek, a question often comes to mind. What is church for? What is church for? And I see that question being answered in the brush arbors as people steal away, steal away home, steal away to Jesus. The bush arbor, the empty cabin, the lodging home became a sanctuary. Enslaved people came to escape the white church, gospel of death, to find the freedom and hope of Jesus. And so I wonder, how are we discerning the body? For Paul, this means discerning who is among us now, who holds power, who is left to the margin, who holds social and economic influence among us. Do our financial structures and decision-making processes center the most socially powerful? 
Do these forms of power place a burden on unity on those who have the most to lose? I promise you that if you discern the body, if we all do, if we take Paul seriously, we will lose church members. We will see conflict. It may be that the economic models we've created to sustain the institutional church can no longer survive. It is hard to imagine bringing that upon ourselves, but maybe now is the time. Maybe here, in the mire of COVID-19, when we are already facing the upheaval of everything we knew about church, God is reaching out to us again. Perhaps the call to you and me, pastors and future leaders of the church, is not to recreate the old ways of holding it together, of fictive unity disguising socioeconomic and gendered hierarchies and power. Perhaps, God is instead calling us to discern the body anew and to trust that this work has already been completed and is here for us in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Reverend Flora Blixer, for bringing us a powerful message today, for issuing to us the challenge to discern the body and to live better as Christ's disciples. Part of living into God's call for our lives is to properly confess before God where we have failed and to prepare ourselves to enter into that life of full service. And so today, we have a prayer of confession. You will find that on page 888 in Voices Together. You will notice that there is a time of silence in this prayer. During that time, you may meditate on however God has been speaking to you in this service. Number 888. Friends in Christ, God knows our needs before we ask, and in our asking prepares us to receive the gift of grace. We open our lives to God's healing presence, seeking peace with God and reconciliation with our neighbors. We are mindful not only of personal evil, but also of our communal sins of family, class, race, and nation. We confess to God whatever has wounded us or brought injury to others, that we may receive mercy and become for each other ministers of God's grace.
Friends, hear the good news. Who is in a position to condemn? Only Christ. And Christ died for us. Christ rose for us. Christ reigns in power for us. Christ prays for us. Let us say together, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old life has gone. A new life has begun. Know that you are forgiven and be at peace. Amen. Well, I would like to invite you to continue the journey with Melissa Flora Bixler. This is a series that comes from her book, How to Have an Enemy, Righteous Anger and the Work of Peace. And, and by the way, there are small little handbills at the doors that would help you um, find a place where you could purchase this book. Um, today we started with Without Discerning the Body. Tonight at 7 in the Science Center 106 Auditorium, is polarization the problem? New imagination for times of conflict. It's a full lecture with time for response. And then tomorrow morning, right here again, not in Martin Chapel as campus worship will be, but here this time. I love this title. Jesus is nice and other lies I learned in church. We hope you'll join us. Also, Facebook, uh, EMU's Facebook page will cover, will have Facebook Live uh, recordings for each of those events. Number 834, Tumamina. Let's stand together. Send us, Jesus. Send us. Alleluia. Amen. <laughs>